Welcome back to the madness of King Bay, or the second live-action Transformers movie, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. And our second anniversary episode! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I sounded way too perky. <laughs> As with the first live-action film, if you like Revenge of the Fallen, then this may not be the episode for you, but we'll be back soon with G1 episode 41, so please join us then. Mm-hmm. Revenge of the Fallen came out in 2009, still starring Shia LaBeouf, and still directed by Michael Bay. It is... (laughs) Yeah, I know. Pity. Uh, It is frequently considered the worst of the live-action films, which is concerning that both Age of Extinction and The Last Night have even lower ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. That takes some doing. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Technically, even Dark of the Moon has a lower audience score than this one, but a higher critic score, so uh, make of that what you will. Basically, what we're saying is until Bumblebee came out, the uh, series hit its peak with its first movie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But let's get started today by talking about our initial experiences with this particular film. I don't think I saw this in theaters, and I found it really unmemorable, uh, aside from there being a few characters that stood out that I still enjoy, but they're very few and far between. Okay, so if you remember in the last, the previous episode, I didn't remember where I saw the first movie. I remember exactly when I saw this movie, because I watched it in theaters for a bachelorette party. Personally, I found the concept of watching a manly action film for a bachelorette party to be fucking hilarious, and I still do. But I really wish it had been for a better movie. I don't remember having much of an opinion on it when I watched it, but I also didn't watch the third movie in the series until literally the last couple of years when I was blazing through a fuck ton of Transformers media, so I clearly didn't care enough to see the continuation in theaters or even rent or borrow it until well after it had been released. We begin yet again with narration from the one and only Peter Cullen. According to our opening scene, Uh, you know, the last movie is not the first time that Earth had been visited by Cybertronians. Ah, shocking. We are shown some craggy mountains populated by ancient humans with spears. Said ancient humans come across a huge Cybertronian installation of some sort and a bunch of Cybertronians. Mm Mm-hmm. Ominous. And then there's a weirdly ancient Egyptian or alien-esque Cybertronian with a staff that's apparently in charge. Several humans are squished, and presumably they're all destroyed before we move on to Shanghai, China in the modern day. Oh, will this be relevant? (laughs) Maybe, maybe, maybe. (laughs) We see the Autobots and the military guys from the last movie now working together to hunt down the remaining Decepticons. The combined group is named NEST, short for Non-Biological Extraterrestrial Species Treaty. Oh, that's a mouthful. It is, so hence NEST. Yeah. (laughs) There have been some additions to the Autobot roster. Which, for simplicity's sake, we're going to talk about them now because they don't really do a lot in the movie. And they do show up kind of in that last section. But again, very few of them even have lines. I I think aside from Optimus, the character with the most lines might actually be Ironhide. Yeah. Um, Sideswipe, not a lot of his personality from G1 or any other iteration for that matter is carried over in this, unfortunately, instead of being a Lamborghini. He's apparently decided to channel tracks and is instead a Corvette Stingray. And yet, still no Sunstroker to be found, much to my frustration. Jolt, a new character who's not in the movie except at the very end, and he has very few fleeting shots in between and has no lines despite his bio saying he's come to Earth to join Optimus' group in the last two years since the first movie. He seems to use electric lips. (laughs) 
And uh, promptly dies in the Dark of the Moon prequel comic. So he never really does get to do anything. Yeah. So then we have Arcee, Chromia, and Ailita One. They are referred to as the Arcee sisters, or if you want to get really confusing, the Arcee twins. Even <laughs> though there's three of them at some point. Yeah. Uh, but instead of, you know, they're, them being referred to by individual names... Apparently, they were written as one entity, and while it depends somewhat on what related media you're looking at, the three of them are commonly portrayed as a multi-component transformer, much like Reflector. They have very little personality, and they do very little in the movie. Their alt modes are all motorcycles. RC is pink, or red, depending on the toy. Chromia is blue, and Idealita one is purple. Their robot modes sort of resemble Thrust from Beast Machines, as they have no legs and function like weird sentient unicycles. Yep. And then there's Skids and Mudflap. Oh boy, where do we start with these two? Well, uh, first, there's definitely someone out there who could have uh, given a better breakdown on this than two random white ladies. Uh, awkward. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, just in, in advance, we are both white women. We do not know what we're talking about here from a personal perspective. Yeah. So we're just going to sum it up with an extremely, oh, in an extremely generalized way. There was a lot of backlash for these two characters due to them possessing a number of racist African-American stereotypical traits that at worst point to the people involved being racist in their own regard, or at best, really not thinking through how this was going to come across to the audience. They've been referred to as comic relief in the same vein as Jar Jar Pinks at several points, which is, I think, a good comparison for our purposes. And like the other five characters we just rattled off, these two will feature somewhat prominently in the movie, so we'll talk more about them as they pop up. At least kind of in vague sentences, because as we said, none of the characters really do very much in this movie. Yeah. These... Even the ones that are in there for the bulk of the movie don't do very much in this movie. Yeah. And then our returning Autobots from the first movie are Optimus Prime, Bumblebee, Ironhide, and Ratchet. Mm-hmm. We see Nest surround a construction vehicle that transforms into a huge-ass robot mode and begins wrecking shit. Yep, things go boom and everything's extremely orange and blue regarding the lighting and environment. The second car Decepticon is spotted nearby and he tries to evade Nest, but is almost immediately bisected by Sideswipe. We don't even really get to see his robot mode either. Like, he's sort of vaguely transformed, I think, to, like crashed through a building, and then was turned back into a car, and was immediately killed by Sideswipe. Yep. Optimus is a fucking airdrop from a plane <laughs> uh, to take on the construction vehicle. Decepticon. I, I'm pretty sure they just really wanted that shot of a semi driving off a damn plane. Yeah. Which I mean, okay, fair, it's a cool shot, but still. Uh, so then we see Optimus transform midair, deploying some parachutes that have the Autobot logo on them for some reason. Is branding that important to the Autobots or their allies? Plus, uh, someone's gonna need to go collect those later. I wanna know why he landed in the middle of a highway, in robot mode. No one here seems to think critically about any of this stuff when they're effectively undercover. Apparently not. I mean, how many people with cell phones are taking photos and video of this? Tons! Tons! That becomes somewhat relevant later. <laughs> Even though people are still being evacuated. Well, yeah, I said before being evacuated, but then to all these all these shots that happen here, you still see a bunch of cars on the road. Yeah, and, and stuff people while still in their homes. Yeah. Optimus catches the rogue Decepticon who tells him menacingly, The Fallen shall rise again. 
Hey, if it gets me out of this movie faster, I for one welcome her fallen overlord. Unfortunately, we've got like another two hours to go. <sighs> Fuck. <laughs> and now, in a completely different movie, Sam is getting ready to leave for college. His parents are having very different reactions. His dad can't seem to wait for him to leave, while his mom is tearing up at every little thing that reminds her of Sam. Apparently his dad's got plans for his room, and I'm thinking, man cave, how creative. Ah, <sighs> he wants his personal theater system, I guess. After being hugged by his sobbing mother, Sam comments that, you see this, dad? This is how you're supposed to react when the fruit of your loins goes into out of the cruel world to fend for himself. Okay, God, that is such a cringe line. I don't want to think about the fruit of that man's loins. I don't want to think about that man's loins at all, okay? Neither do I. That's why it's so cringy. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that, Sam. <sighs> we are treated to an awkward moment when Sam's dad spanks his mom on the butt as she walks away. Sam is disgusted. I guess he is our audience surrogate in this moment. His dad then tries to play it off as it's like a coach. And no, that does not make it better. <laughs> that effectively makes it worse. Sexual harassment is not okay. Sam is apparently the first Witwicky to go to college. I have questions. Again, what the fuck does Sam's dad do that allows them to have this huge house that didn't require a college degree at any point? Who knows? Uh, the Witwickies have apparently got another dog since the last movie, uh, so just another thing to add to this movie, dog humping. Lots of dog humping in their dog condo. It's kind of unsettling. I don't know why they thought that this needed to be in the movie, but here we are. <sighs> Michaela calls Sam, intending to break up with him. She is the most emotionally mature person in this movie. Yep, pretty much. They talk. Uh, Sam insinuates that they're going to be entering a long-distance relationship while he's at college. <sighs> while they're talking, Sam pulls out an old ripped t-shirt, his D-Day shirt as he refers to it, which is apparently the shirt that he was wearing during the battle in Central City from the first movie. This is important. This is a plot point. <sighs> Yeah, we also have to assume that he has never washed the nasty shredded clothes from that day, because I suppose he wants to hold them and relive the memories of being chased by giant alien robots that want to, to murder him. No clue. Uh, Sam does try to convince Michaela to move near the college he's going to, but she refuses. Her father's been released from jail since the first movie, and she insists on needing to take care of him. That should not be poor Michaela's responsibility, but she is... The most responsible person in this movie is. Well, and I get it, right? Like, her dad just got out. Presumably she has not seen, really been able to live with him for years. She's both worried about him and probably wants to spend time with him. Yeah, that's fair. Convenient plot device is convenient as a sliver of the allspark falls off of Sam's shirt while he's on the phone to Michaela. It seems to zap Sam and then he drops it. When it lands on the floor, it burns its way through the floor and into the kitchen, bringing a bunch of kitchen appliances to life. They all attack Sam! How do they get ammo? Does does being brought to life just give them ammo? Uh, dear God, why does one of these things have a penis? That's my major question. Furthermore, why is it shooting things out of its penis? Because Michael Bay. I had yeah, I, that's all I got, man. Bumblebee bursts out of the garage and begins shooting at the little Decepticon, saving Sam's sorry ass yet again. Maybe B should be trying to smash them instead of shooting at them. They're, they're on the front lawn at this point, so all I can think is their neighbors have to be able to see this. Oh, I thought this was in the back lawn, but I'm not sure. Like, they're outside. He's no longer in the kitchen. He's trying to shoot Decepticons outside the house. It probably is the backyard, but I don't know. Sam yells at B to get in the garage. Way to micromanage your giant robot bodyguard slash friend. 
Again, it's like you'd yell at a dog or something. <laughs> bad Bumblebee, bad. Of course, B smashed out of the garage, uh, despite having a perfectly do- good door in front of him, and then re-enters through the hole he had previously made. Sam's mother is not happy about the surprise kitchen renovations, but Sam's dad calms her down by telling her that the government will pay for it all. I'm so glad to know that this is where my taxes would be going to in this universe. No, it's definitely worse than some of the other things they could be going for. (sighs) I suppose that's true. Uh, Sam's mom is like, fine, but I want a pool and a hot tub. And I quote, and I'm going to skimmy dip and you can't say shit about it. And quite frankly, that woman's put up with a lot of stuff. I I respect, uh, you know, as long as she's got a good fence, her right to skinny dip in her own yard. (laughs) Yeah, they need that privacy fence. Uh, Sam goes into the garage to tell the audience, I mean, a bee, uh, how bee can't come to college with him. For reference, ignore the bit in the last movie where bee talked because that's just going to be ignored for like three freaking movies. Yeah. To calm bee down, he says, you'll always be my first car. Not even you're my best friend. You're my first car. Congratulations, Bumblebee. You're my possession. Pretty much. <laughs> That's creepy. Sam gives the Allspark shard to Michaela for some reason, because Michaela shows up at the end of all of this. Uh, right, you know, like everything has exploded. Michaela's out there looking lovely with a bouquet of flowers. Yep. Instead of calling the Autobots or giving it to Bumblebee, nope, it is given to Michaela for safekeeping. I mean, she is the most sensible person out of everyone the here. Yeah, it's not that I can't Mika- that it's not that I don't think Michaela can keep it safe. Uh, she manages to do so quite swimmingly through this movie, but it's rather thought that she can use it at all and it could potentially be dangerous for her to have it on her person. Yeah. And B is right there. It's not like he couldn't give it to B and tell B to take it to the Autobots. Yeah. Like, that would be uh, a lot more sensible, though if they'd done that, it might have been put in with the other... Another thing that happens later in the movie. (laughs) True. Anyway, they smooch, words are said, and a somewhat sappy 2000-era love song plays. Meanwhile, no one seems to notice the toy remote control truck that's being controlled by no one. A remote control truck that is somehow communicating with outer space, and somehow this character will be vaguely important. Shush, my boy is here! (laughs) Ah, Soundwave shows up and takes over a surveillance satellite. I'm sure I've mentioned this before at some point, because I know I've said this multiple times, at least to Spags. But yes, I actually like the Bay version of Soundwave. He's not in the movie much, but having him take over a satellite and spend the rest of the movie gathering intelligence and sending troops out? Feels very in character. Keep going, baby. His design is still garbage. Just like everybody else, though. (laughs) And his voice sounds very nice. That's because it's actually Welker. He's allowed to be in this movie, doing a sizable chunk of the speaking Decepticons even. This is not a G1 similarity I necessarily expected, but I do find it hilarious. Apparently, he also did the voice for Soundwave in a bunch of other language dubs too, which, while interesting, I have to question why. It's not like Soundwave's voice would have necessarily sounded the same in those other languages in the original G1 dub. It just seems like an odd decision. Money. Money? I Kudos to him for attempting it, at least, but I still don't know why they did it. Back at the Nest headquarters, we see Mudflap and Skid's uh, shenanigans, and they're unloading dozens of bodies, presumably soldiers that died in Shanghai. Uh, that's... Uh, Welcome to the morbid stuff that they don't spend any time on it at all. Uh, why is Sideswipe Silver? You had one job, movie. One job. Sideswipe is a little red sports car. This is like, 
His defining characteristic. Surely this was doable. I don't think anyone involved in making the movie was a very big fan of G1 or wanted to maintain, you know, artistic integrity with regards to that. <sighs> yeah, I know. What am I saying? I think the actual reason is I've heard Red is harder to film. Oh, that might that, be. Like, yeah. but I don't... It could be because I want to say, and I'm sorry if I'm incorrect, I want to say that's actually the reason Optimus's color scheme got changed around quite a bit mm. and why he's got more blue on him. So, a jumped-up government official shows up at Nest Headquarters. And I think we all know where this is going. Uh, this will be our bureaucratic bastard for this evening. Yeah, you know, the wimpy suit who keeps getting in the way of the army men and their real job. America! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, and here we have a lovely shot of Optimus transforming. It's like some nice rotating thing. Okay, get the robot transformation porn out of the way. Next. And the bureaucratic weasel confronts Optimus on why haven't the Decepticons left the planet now that the Allspark is destroyed? Like they thought they would. Optimus seems to take the opinion that Daddy Prime knows best. Weasel's not super happy about this, but Optimus does say the Autobots will leave Earth if asked. Neither of these groups are handling this super amazingly. Yes, even Optimus. Both sides have a point if they'd stop trying to wave their metaphorical dicks around and actually talk from a position of respecting each other's expertise. I'm betting this would go a whole lot better. Probably. The Nest members back Optimus up. Our only returning characters here are Lennox and Epps, both played by the same actors from last time. Though I did not realize this at first, I totally thought Epps was played by somebody completely different. And I'm going to blame the writing, because Epps is not given a lot of things to do here. He was a very memorable character in the first movie. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, anyway, back to college. College away. <laughs> Sam's apparently going to Princeton on the government's dime, no less. Oh god, and he does absolutely nothing with it in later films. <laughs> Again, we're assuming, due to the filming locations, that Sam lives in Southern California or thereabouts, so we're a bit surprised to realize he actually decided to go to college on the other side of the country. It certainly doesn't come across like Michaela is a priority in his life. Yeah. I mean, seriously, he could have gone to school in California. There's plenty of good schools in California. Yep. But, uh, are you ready for some booze and boobs? <sighs> We're introduced to Sam's roommates. The only one that will actually play much of a role in the plot will be our buddy Leo here. I hope you're being sarcastic. I mean, I mostly mean that he's there. Well, no, I meant with the buddy bit. <laughs> uh, yes, that was sarcasm. Yeah. Uh, Leo runs a conspiracy theory website called The Real Effing Deal, which is currently scrambling to get a footage of the fight from Shanghai uh, from earlier in the movie up on their site. Which again, is abundant because Optimus landed in the middle of a highway. Yeah. Anyway, they're trying to do this until another person, a robo-warrior, one-ups them and gets the footage up, I think, on a different site first. Yeah. Sam does his best to play it cool and blow Leo and his friends off because it's all a fake. <laughs> also, I'd like to take a, take a moment to note the era-accurate Naruto poster decor among the sea of boobs. Yeah. Leo makes a comment that he and Sam are poor. Alright, sit down and buckle up, because this legitimately pissed me the fuck off. So to rant for a moment, let's go back down the checklist of Sam's white fucking privilege, shall we? He lives in a big house, in a nice neighborhood, in what we are assuming is Southern California, which is not a cheap place to live. His parents have enough time for leisure activities and, in fact, go on vacation in Paris after dropping Sam off. Yep. 
His dad bought him a car in the last movie, and yes, he was very much implied to be being a cheap ass at the time, but at no point is there any indication he couldn't have bought Sam a nicer car. And the car that he's driving when he, like, jokes around on what type of car he's going to get him looks like it's a fancy, expensive car itself. That's also true. Speaking as someone who grew up in a lower-income rural area, and I say this not even remotely being the worst off in that area, our floors were rotting out. Every time we had a heavy rain, we had to run to the windows with towels because so many of them leaked. And more applicable in this situation, my family did not have the money to save up for college for me or any of my siblings. Yes, I realize the government is apparently paying for his tuition, but that just proves my point even more. Because Sam's going to come out of this with no student loan debt. Yep. So, pour my fucking ass. Uh-huh. Sam's mom shows up at his dorm room. Hi, is a goddamn kite because she apparently bought and ate some brownies from the bake sale, not realizing that they were weed brownies. And she's just gonna be a punchline for the next several scenes. Sorry. Yeah. To just list a few of the things that this high as a kite mother does, uh, he talks about him losing his virginity loudly and kind of at length to various women in the hallway. <laughs> And in the surrounding environs, mentions that his car is a talking robot, tackles a dude for some frisbees, and petitions Sam's dad for sex on the campus green. <laughs> Considering how much she ate, it's very likely she will need to go to the hospital because her knees may attempt to kill her. Uh, then we cut to Soundwave, apropos of nothing, uh, ejecting Ravage into space. Look, I get him for ten seconds, I'm going to fucking enjoy it. <laughs> Ravage's design here is very prominent with the pointy bits and teeth. And, <laughs> and he lands near a U.S. military base and runs over to a pipe sticking out of the ground and basically uh, ralphs up a bunch of itty bitty butts into the pipe. Uh, you know, so I'm just saying, uh, Soundwave's baby had babies. This clearly makes Soundwave a granddad. <laughs> All the bots fall down the pipe, and once they're at the other end, mills together to form a new bot that is... Yeah. He's interesting, uh, at least visually, in that he is basically flat, so he can be borderline invisible when he's looking head-on at something. He looks like a knife raptor. Uh, this thing's name is Reedman, and he doesn't show up except in this one scene. Uh, he also brings our Decepticons voiced by Frank Welker count up to three after Soundwave and Ravage. Reedman? Reedman, yeah. I looked at the wiki. I looked at the wiki and I was like, that's a terrible name, but that's the name. I am judging whoever named <laughs> So hard. Boy, aren't we just judging the entire movie? Oh, yes, but Friedman. <sighs> I know, man. Another piece, aside from Sam's piece of the All Spark, is being held here, so uh, Reedman gets to work stealing it. Alarms begin to go off and several military guys arrive at the bunker and shoot at our knife raptor. Ravage begins firing at the base to distract them. I'm very amused he's got his tiny little hit missiles, too. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the plot, we're all absolutely dying to continue. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Sam's been dragged to a college frat party by his roommates. It looks like a frat party. I don't even know why they want to bring Sam. Uh, they don't even seem to like him. Uh, they want to have someone less cool with them so that uh, basically they can be like, hey, look at that lame guy. We're much cooler. 
Well, Sam is definitely the least cool person in the area right now due to mommy shenanigans. Yeah. Well, at the party, Sam is missing his first video call with Michaela. God, you are such a sucky long-distance boyfriend, Sam. You had one job. So we see Michaela getting ready, taking her hair down, and talking to her doggo while getting her computer set up. Sam promptly begins to spaz out by the uh, snack table and draws strange symbols with food. These symbols are Cybertronian, and the AllSpark fragment has helpfully downloaded a bunch of stuff directly into Sam's brain. (sighs) We've upgraded from they want the glasses to they're going to want the brain, aren't they? (laughs) Something along those lines, yes. Quite frankly, again, I think they can have it. One partygoer notices Sam's new hobby and saunters over to seduce herself to him. (laughs) Uh, Blondie's name is Alice, and don't worry, we'll get to see her panties later, because what the absolute fucking fuck, Bay? (sighs) Bay, why? Why do you hurt me so? Uh, There's a discussion about girlfriends, and Sam says, kind of, in regards to having one. Kind of? Kind of? Sam, you dick waffle. Uh, The quintessential jock yells. Who drove the freaking yellow Camaro? Sam's beast senses tingle and he leaves the party. He is waiting outside on the lawn. Or possibly the bushes. But (laughs) in that general vicinity. (laughs) Yeah, but Alice follows him down and hops into Bee's passenger seat. Bee attempts to communicate to Sam that this woman is bad news using various voice clips and songs. And this would have been a really interesting bit if B did have his voice back and he had to communicate with Sam like this because he's doing it in front of Alice. Yeah, like that would have been interesting and a neat way of utilizing his past experience to communicate. Yeah, because I I don't remember if we've talked about this super much, but there there's nothing wrong with B still relying a bit on that because it is kind of funny and entertaining to see. It's just make it so he has to use it in scenarios with other people around. Yeah. God, he could do so much with musical lyrics. (laughs) Pretty much. Alice seems to know something is up, as B makes her as uncomfortable as physically possible as he can, including spraying her with a icky yellow liquid and slamming her into the dashboard. She exits in a huff before Bumblebee takes Sam to a graveyard where the rest of the Autobots are waiting. So that was night. Now we are inexplicably in the daytime. Morning. Early morning, it looks like. Yeah. Optimus tells Sam the last piece, or as much as he is aware of the AllSpark, was stolen and attempts to convince Sam to remind the other humans why the Autobots are necessary and why they're trying to use a college student for this is a big question. I don't know. And Sam says no because he's just a normal college student. I don't understand this. I feel like I would jump at a chance like this. Like, dude, does it have good health insurance? Does it have a pension? Yes? Sign me the fuck up. But I want to ask, why the heck didn't Sam tell the Autobots here about the fragment he gave to Michaela? Because he's a shitty little baby. I mean, obviously. Oh, obviously. Uh, Then, out in the middle of the ocean, in a different movie, over the Laurentian Abyss, which is where the dead cons were dumped in the last movie, several Decepticons have stowed away on what looks like a cargo ship. The fact that it's going directly over where they need to go is, uh, they probably hacked it. Wouldn't shock me. Yeah. So who the Decepticons are is absolutely unimportant. The only recognizable one is Ravage. And I think only one other one will actually get named. Yeah. Uh, so they all jump off the ship and into the water. And I have to, you know, bring up that he specifically said they dumped the dead bodies into this trench because of the pressure and cold in the last movie. So why are all these cons just perfectly fine with a little skinny dipping? 
I mean, maybe it's just supposed to keep, I don't know, whatever self-repair systems the dead ones have from working, and it doesn't do shit to, like, perfectly fine robots. They were using knows? cold as a weapon against them in one, though. Like, against B. That's absolutely true, but I mean, if cold didn't do anything to them, how would they operate in space? I don't know. But they clearly had Megatron on ice. Who knows? Yeah. And he got frozen in the Arctic! Yeah, I know. The entire thing is garbage. It maybe maybe water maybe frozen water is the kryptonite. God. Why did, I mean, welcome to Earth! Why didn't they dismember the Decepticons or incinerate them or, you know, take important parts, crush them, destroy them or whatever, or, like throw them in a hundred different places? That would work a lot better than this. Run them through a trash compactor or something before they dump them down into the Laurentian trait abyss. I'll tell you exactly why. Uh, because the government put out a bid for trash removal in the lowest bidder one. The government does stupid things. <laughs> Many times. <sighs> we see a military sub monitoring this area, reading the five Cybertronian life signs. They reach Megatron, and a literal doctor bot, whose name is Scalpel, starts uh, poking around at his corpse. <laughs> uh, he shouts about his need for parts, and one of the nameless Constructicons is off. The parts in the AllSpark fragment are all shoved into Megatron. So Megatron's back. Yep. And yet, still voiced by Hugo Weaving, so I don't care, no offense Hugo Weaving, uh, get back to me in two movies. Also, notice they didn't kill Ravage here because I'm entirely convinced Soundwave would end them. Probably. Because, I mean, they did... Like, the little doctor boss specified, kill the little one. It's pointing to a random Constructicon. Yeah. Fun bout of bad continuity. The radar shows the five life signs, as Ravage and Scalpel are both too small to show up. And then uh, when they come up, they have six life signs. But uh, you'll remember they had to kill a Constructicon down there, so uh, it should be the same number, even with Megatron in tow. Or maybe they brought other Constructicons. Decepticons back to life? I don't know. I don't think so. We never see them. They they could have brought Blackout back to life, but we'll get into why they didn't later. <laughs> I mean, maybe they brought, uh, shoot, Scorponok? Nope, Scorponok never died in the first movie. Oh. Huh. Yeah. He, he just, they got his tail. Like, the, oh, the, right. the army guys cut off his tail, but then he disappeared. Oh, that's right. Hmm. Megatron's apparently salty enough at humans, though, in general, to smash through this the military sub on his way up. So all those people are dead now. He'd do that even if he wasn't feeling salty. You know that. Oh, yeah. He's a bastard, but, you know. Uh, Megatron flies to one of uh, Saturn's moons where the Nemesis is being, uh, well, is parked and is used as a base by some of the remaining Decepticons, which includes our old buddy Starscream. And uh, he knocked Starscream around for taking over the Decepticons while he was away. <laughs> you know, while he was literally fucking dead. <laughs> uh, and uh, so we are introduced to the Darth Sidious to Megatron's Darth Maul. Including liberal use of the word disciple. <sighs> so much sighing. <laughs> this is the Fallen whose name we will not find out in the movie itself because it would be really fucking confusing to have Megatron and his master... Megatronus running around. Also, um, a bunch of little baby robots and pods on the wall. Robot eggs. So many robot eggs. But no, really, I'm not sure we can explain that any better than we just did, so just roll with it. Yeah. Anyway, the Fallen isn't shown to have an alt mode in this, but once you see him, you do realize he was the Transformer that was shown at the very beginning of the movie while Optimus was monologuing. And, as kind of mentioned previously, he looks vaguely like the Queen from Alien, but, you know, with 
eyes and a huge staff he fights with. And less arms and no tail. Yeah. Apparently, though, only a prime can kill the fallen. Don't ask us how the fuck that works. I guess only a prime can kill a prime? Because wasn't the fallen a Yes, he a was prime? considered a prime. But I don't. I still don't know how the mechanics of that works, what I'm getting at. Is it just a weird cultural hang-up? I, I, I don't know. That's what I'm saying. It's never explained. I know, I know. This will get weird in a bit. <laughs> it will. But they're like, so if we remove that one pesky remaining prime, we'll be off scot-free. Yep. The Fallen explains that the Allspark cannot be destroyed. It can merely be transformed. Everything transforms on Cybertron. But right now, the Allspark is currently living rent-free in Sam's head. And I think he wants some goddamn rent. But I think we all want some goddamn rent for having this living rent-free in our lives. <laughs> right? Beige, pay us for watching this movie. <sighs> so, the Decepticons are going to go after Sam. Again. Kill Optimus, or at least make another attempt at it again. And presumably somehow use Sam's brain as the Allspark. But then Starscream walks in holding a dead robot baby, waving it around and saying they need more energon or all the hatchlings will continue to die. Well, someone apparently... <sighs> I just don't know why this is here. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know why they felt the need to have Starscream motioning while holding a dead baby. <laughs> Being a very bad nurse. Like yes! But now it's time to go back to school! I already want to hit someone in this class. Mount multiple someones. Sam is sitting in on his physics class. With the absolute creepiest, filthiest fucking professor I have seen in a good long while. <sighs> Innuendo is a god complex. This man is so many sexual harassment lawsuits. And a restraining order waiting to happen. This is not appealing. Who the fuck does this appeal to? I don't know, but I'm ace, so I'm possibly not the best person to ask. Is this a straight woman thing? Where the hell are we gonna find one of those this time of night? <laughs> Sam starts freaking out like he was uh, doing at the party, writing equations and stuff all over the board. He basically gets up and bulls his way into uh, up to the front of the class and basically shows up the shitty professor. Uh, Bulkhead did this in Prime. I'd like to personally nominate Bulkhead as her main character instead of Sam. Oh, yeah, Bulkhead would be a much more fun character. Sam is promptly kicked out of the class uh, because showing up the professor and also the fact that the dean is apparently there. So he's been, that professor has been like this while the dean is there. Yeah, so uh, obviously he's sleeping with the old lady too is what I'm getting from this. That's creepy. It's even worse. I mean, this is a female dean. Yeah, female dean. Not just a random, like, male dean. I mean, an older female dean. Oh, God. Sam calls Michaela mid-freak out and realizes that the Allspark has caused his little problem. Uh, so he asks her to bring the Allspark fragment to him on the East Coast. Uh, by the way, I would just like to take a moment to tell you this very important information. Michaela's dog's name is Bones. Uh, the little remote control truck Decepticon, who we regret to inform you is this universe's version of Wheelie, uh, is stalking around the garage where Michaela is. Wheelie uh, clearly hasn't gotten the memo on, you know, Michaela taking out a Decepticon with a power tool in the first movie, decides to be a dumbass and say, you're hot but you're not too bright, as he attempts to steal the Allspark fragment. The fact that Wheelie has some sort of metric for human um, attractiveness is honestly really concerning. Just a little bit. 
predictably, though, Michaela fucks him up with a welding torch, including taking out one of his optics. Wheelie begs for mercy from the warrior goddess. At last, Michaela is given a proper title. Uh-huh. And then Michaela shoves him in a box and hops on a plane. Metal box. I feel yeah. like it's important. It does actually hold him. Yeah, a metal box and hops on a plane with him and the Allspark. And honestly, this feels like something that she couldn't successfully do after 9-11. Which is hilarious, because this was definitely filmed after 9-11. So we just have to go with, she's so sexy that she was able to get the big metal box on the plane without it having to go through an x-ray. Except that everything that goes on the plane, when you check it, should go through x-ray. I know! I know! Or boobs! The power of boobs! Never mind that the power of boobs should not, you know, somehow affect the people that do not get exposed to the boobs. See, see, this is why uh, this movie would have been stopped in the tracks if one of the TSA agents had been a woman. <laughs> a straight woman. Or one of the people who sort stuff and... Because, like, just it looks like it was her carry-on. Now I'm just imagining that the people, because, like, you know how they sometimes go and randomly open bags to go through the contents? <laughs> I'm just imagining someone doing that and then there being a major freak-out because out comes a stupid little <laughs> remote-controlled car that's yeah. yelling at everyone. Yeah. Uh, then we cut to a short segment showing that all the Autobots are heading to locations on the East Coast as the rest of Nest mobilizes. But wait! Decepticon pretenders are afoot at Princeton. That's not ominous at all. <laughs> Sam is in his room, going nuts and writing stuff on the wall. Uh, and then Alice pushes her way into Sam's room and attempts a rather forceful seduction. She straight up picks him up and tosses him on the bed. Which really should have been his first clue that something was very wrong. Yeah, because Alice is not uh, portrayed as a... A big woman. She's, yes. she's very slight and conventionally attractive. Yeah. So she gets on top of him and then we get the most awkward shot of Decepticon panties as the metal tail comes out from underneath Alice's extremely short dress. Thanks for that, Michael Bay. I always, always wondered what brand of underpants Decepticons would wear if given the chance. She kisses Sam, apparently with tongue, and Michaela walks in and is understandably pissed. Alice asked if she's his girlfriend, and Michaela just says X and walks out, and I'm just like, yes, girl, you're back him. And meanwhile, Leo is sort of fluttering around in the background. Yes, uh, because Alice pushed past him to get into their dorm room. Sam attempts to follow, but Alice is 99% done with his dumbass. Uh, she attempts to strangle him with her suddenly very long and metal tongue. <sighs> that has apparently been places I do not want to think about. I do not want to think about any of this, yeah. Yeah. Sam is able to escape, and we see Alice transform into a very obvious robot. Sam, Michaela, and Leo run into a nearby library where Sam and Michaela begin having a whisper argument. They're busy whisper shouting this entire time. Alice catches up and smashes through the library, still chasing them. I'm surprised this thing still has hair in robot mode. Hair? I mean, it's still got boobs! Hey, what the fuck? <laughs> so, they hop in a car, Michaela saves both their butts by hot-wiring it and slamming Alice into a lamppost before running her over again with the car. Where was Bumblebee during all of this? Uh, he was actually with the Autobots a few- the other Autobots a few scenes back, so he's definitely not here. Yeah. Unfortunately, Sam and company don't get very far and are captured by Grinder, who picks them up like 
So, you know those uh, claw machines <laughs> at grocery stores? Grinder basically does that, and then he carries them off like they're his claw machine loot. Nearly losing one in the process. I mean, truly, they kind of are. So, uh, you know how I've just mentioned that they definitely couldn't have brought Blackout back to life? That is because Grindor looks exactly like Blackout, but he's not Blackout. <laughs> because Blackout died at the end of the last movie, and we totally thought he was Blackout, and he's even listed as Blackout on some of the toys and a good chunk of promotional material. But, but he's a different character. I don't know why they did this. I don't know. They wanted to keep the trademark in use, maybe, for the grinder name. Because they used it, I think, in anime? In Armada. I think they used it in Armada, so. This was probably just naked patent. Uh... It was bad, though. Oh, yeah, I know. Or, um, trade name trademarks? I don't know. But he makes Decepticon number four, voiced by Welker. Mm-hmm. So, the car is dropped into some kind of warehouse where Sam is confronted by the now very alive Megatron. Who's definitely holding a grudge against Sam for the whole killing him in the last movie thing. Yep, Sam is laid out on a concrete slab and Scalpel gets to work. Starting with shoving a metal squid down Sam's throat. Uh... No, 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 no. Yeah, this is uh, pretty gross, and I don't like it, and I don't think anyone else likes it either. Uh, Metal Squid uh, exits his mouth and projects images of what's in Sam's brain. Uh... But this is apparently not all the information in his brain, as Scalpel definitely intends to remove it from his head. Sam is saved just in time by the Autobots. I want to know how Megatron even got into this warehouse. There's not any, like, big holes that we can see or anything, aside from the one Grindor, when Grindor dropped the car through. Yeah, there, there really don't seem to be any openings big enough for him that we can see. Okay, uh, just going to assume mass shifting in this continuity for no good reason. Okay. Either that or he did the stupid I'm a contortionist <laughs> the doors, which seems way more respect for Robot the... limbo! That seems to be way more uh, respect for the integrity of this building than Megatron should feel. Yes! Uh, so, um, Leo and Michaela escape in B while Optimus takes Sam. So they're separated, and Optimus has to fight Megatron alone. And Megatron turns into a tank for a split second. I didn't even realize this version of him could be a tank. Yay, he's a multi-former? Apparently. But now, it's the match of the century! Here at the Forest Friday Arena! It's Megatron versus Optimus tonight, folks! The Warlord himself versus Optimus fucking Prime! <laughs> Optimus gets a good right hook in! Right before being tackled by Megatron! Is that legal? I don't know, it's giant robots! It's all the same amount of legal! Oh! He's got the train! Optimus has got the train! What a hit! You know that one must have hurt! And now it's a sword fight? They both are up and swinging away! It just turned into a three-on-one match, folks! Oh no, no, Optimus! Starscream and Grinder have joined the fray! Wait, somehow a human's gotten into the arena! Starscream and Megatron are chasing him down. But Optimus has intercepted them and has taken them both on! Starscream has been tossed out of the arena, out of bounds, out of bounds! Optimus has gone through tree! Now the clowns are all just taking turns hitting him. You hate to see it, folks. You hate to see it. Optimus is eating dirt! But he's back and now dual-wielding blades! Grindor's lost an arm! Megatron's taking a good one to the kneecap. And a hit to the base! That's it! That's it for Grindor! Hook, line, and sinker! Oh, 
just dragging him. We're taking the blade to the chest. That's it. It's all over. Optimus is down. I repeat, Optimus is down. Megatron's the winner. <laughs> no, really, Optimus is dead now because Bay wants to make us feel things. Except very badly, and unfortunately, this Optimus didn't pack up his brain on a floppy disk. And I mean, there is no pathos here. Of course, somehow during all of this, no one ends our suffering by squishing Sam accidentally or otherwise. <sighs> the rest of the Autobots drive up just in time to see Optimus's body. Where the fuck were they? Being useless. Yeah, that checks out. Megatron and Starscream flee and uh, land on a skyscraper in the middle of a city and then argue about what to do next. And we cut to Soundwave doing what he does best, remotely managing resources. Which in this case means tracking Sam's parents down in Paris as they enjoy some fine Parisian food and prank calling them. Yeah, his mom is not uh, impressed about the heavy breathing. <laughs> Such as it is. Uh, we then see several Decepticons, including the Fallen, fall to Earth, taking out several air carriers and buildings as they land. One of these Decepticons captures Sam's parents. The Fallen sends out a TV broadcast, basically spelling out that he wants Sam turned over to him in order to spare the rest of the planet. Ah, the news story is shown, letting us know that worldwide the number of casualties is in the ballpark of 7,000. And, well, that's not as horrifying as it came across initially, but... Just 7,000 for the entire world? I, for one, welcome our Decepticon overlords. In case you're watching this in the future, <laughs> we're recording this at the tail end of 2020 and we live in the U.S. That's literally less than 30% of the U.S.'s current COVID death count at this point. And while we were researching this episode, it's probably more now. Sam, Michaela, Leo, B, and the twins are hiding out in and around some abandoned buildings. Leo's upset, but Sam tells him to suck it up because he's involved now. A helicopter dumps Optimus's body over at Nest, and that was not a respectful handling of a dead body. To be fair, he is very big, and the humans are very small, and that was not an Autobot helicopter. Yeah, but that was effectively a world leader. Yeah. Ironhide is upset and uh, begins to get antsy with his guns. Mr. Government Weasel shows up and shuts Nest down. Lennox gets upset when he realizes the U.S. government is planning to hand Sam over. And they're right to consider it. You should, theoretically speaking, hand over one person who has the possibility of stopping a massive amount of death. The problem is, it wouldn't stop the massive amount of death. It would just let them basically strip mine the planet because the Decepticons, the name, starts with deception. <laughs> Fair, but the only ones who would know that are the Autobots and possibly members of Nest. From the perspective of government officials who do not have this information, it makes sense. Yeah. Skids and Mudflap clue the group in on trying to find someone who can read the Cybertronian text the Allspark downloaded into Sam's brain. Leo has decided to join them on their, uh, adventure. In quotation marks. Which is probably, uh, for the best, because he knows a guy who might be able to help. Remember the rival internet guy from before? Guess who's back from the first movie, and it might not be your first thought. <laughs> That's right, Agent Simmons from the first movie, who is no longer is a no longer an agent, is Robo Warrior. I feel like the tech guy from the first movie would have probably made a better Robo Warrior. Yeah, I do too. I do too. <sighs> so Sam and company arrive at Simmons' mom's deli, or possibly his deli that his mom works at too, or something. I don't know. It it's not very clear. Yeah. Uh, come to find out that Simmons has held on to some old Sector 7 documents. Not just some, uh, he stole a lot of shit from Sector 7. Like, enough to fill, like, a 
sub basement. <laughs> uh, now Michaela pulls out Wheelie, who has been in tow in the metal box, uh, uh-huh. smooth talking him into helping them. Wheelie also can't read the writing from before, saying that it's in the language of the primes and that they need a seeker. I had completely forgotten they referred to these guys as Seekers until we watched this again. I kind of had a what-the-fuck moment. Same. Seekers in this continuity are ancient Cybertronians that had been tasked with traveling the galaxy looking for stars to use as energy sources for the Allspark. This is a little bit of a uh, hint, hint, hint for uh, something that might happen later. In a convenient quinky-dink, some of Simmons' old documents show several of these Seekers in their alt modes. Wheelie is able to identify an SR-71 Blackbird in the National Air and Space Museum as a seeker. So off the gang goes to Washington, D.C. Outside the National Air and Space Museum, Simmons rips off his pants, revealing the Sector 7 thong to the audience. And then turns around so we can get the view from every angle. No, no, no. I did not need to see robot balls. I did not need to see hairy man balls. And I certainly did not need to see hairy man ass. I'm not even sure why he did this. I assume he changed pants. But I don't know why he did that right here in a parking lot in front of everyone. The pain. I don't know. (laughs) And thus they come up with uh, the most amazing scheme to get into the museum as it's closing. Leo's being a coward and Simmons intimidates him a bit. Oh god, that man is pressing his man-meat against that man's meat! (sighs) Inside the museum, Leo comes out of the bathroom with his pants, like, down around his ankles, looking for toilet paper. Why do they want to do this to me? I am feeling personally attacked by the quantity of hairy man I am seeing in this movie. Why are they doing this to us? (laughs) Why are they doing this to everyone? (laughs) Yeah, the security guard escorts Leo back into the bathroom, chastising him about how this is a family museum. Yeah, the only one guy doing their job here is the security guard, okay? (laughs) Yeah, and uh, attempts to hand him toilet paper over the top of the stall. Leo then zaps him with a taser, and the man falls to the ground. Of course, Leo manages to uh, tase himself with the taser, too, and falls down uh, kind of by the guy and is unable to move. Simmons comes in and drags Leo, still twitching, out of the bathroom. I am hoping that his pants are up, but God, who I don't knows think they were when he started dragging him. <laughs> oh, his butt, his butt cheeks were all over that floor. So they run through the museum and find the correct jet, and then Sam uses the Allspark fragment on that jet. You would think that perhaps, perhaps, before using an Allspark fragment to wake a Cybertronian up, you might check his goddamn faction badge first, but no! And suddenly after the jet begins to transform, they notice the goddamn Decepticon symbol. We are introduced to easily what is not only the best robot character in this movie, but quite possibly the best character in the movie, period. Meet Jetfire. He's old, he's cranky, he's a delight, and he's got a pretty sweet looking beard. Yep. And a cane made from his old mode's landing gear, you know, for extra old man points. Now, bit of a tangent, but in G1, you will remember Skyfire, our big sweetie pie scientist. Starscream's X, so you can't forget that. Can't forget that, and also frequently utilized as a taxi service by the Autobots. Well, Skyfire is often named Jetfire instead, depending on the continuity, you know, name stuff is weird. Yeah, and, but this Jetfire doesn't have too much in common with our big old scientist. I just wanted to point out that he was clearly referencing him. Um, but the one thing he does have in common, and the most important thing to the idiots we're following, is that he is a Decepticon defector. Mm-hmm. Jetfire attempts to fire at a large door to get outside, but is uh, having some uh, performance issues with his equipment. 
he is able to get outside, and so our party follows him um, into Arizona. And yes, we know that movies often have to be shot at other locations or fudge locations and make certain events work, but I find this one particularly jarring as they are clearly in a desert with mountains off in the distance, which does not line up with the geography around Washington, D.C. Yeah, considering that it was lettuce swamp. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not a desert with mountains. Yeah. Uh, this part was actually filmed at the 309th Aerospace Maintenance and Regeneration Group, or the Boneyard, in Tuscan, Arizona. Jetfire gives a speech about how being an Autobot or a Decepticon is a choice. An intensely personal choice, even. And Willie's like, holy shit, it is! And proceeds to start humping Michaela's leg. Charming. So many slides. <laughs> I don't understand all the humping in this movie, babe. I really don't. Juvenile male humor. Guys think humping shit is funny somehow. I don't know. Jetfire shows his uh, senility a little bit, talking about his parents. My father? Why, he was a wheel. The first wheel. And you know what he transformed into? Nothing. But he did so with honor. Dignity, damn it. And that is a direct quote. <laughs> Straight from the man himself. He's a delight. <sighs> Sam pulls out a knife and begins carving the uh, Cybertronian symbols into the ground. I mean, where did, they, where did he get the knife? I have questions. Thong man? Probably. <laughs> Disconcerting, disconcertingly, yes, that is probable. Um, Jetfire blabbers off about the dagger's tip before generating a space bridge and teleporting everyone to Egypt with uh, very little warning. I mean, the only warning he gives them is, hold on or you'll die, <laughs> to the nearby squishies. I also feel like we need to preface Dagger's tip as in a location, not talking about the, the knife Sam is holding. Realize that might be a little confusion without confusing without context. Yeah, and our Bumblebee and the, the twins are the twins also, are translated, also trans here. translated, transported. Oh, okay, because yeah, they apparently showed up after they they exited and mass translocated to Arizona. <laughs> Life is weird in this movie. Yeah, so uh, then Jetfire informs us that once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, the original Seven Primes had arrived on Earth to build a device called a Star Harvester, which can create Energon by destroying suns. Wait, Seven? Did they just pick a number at random? Probably. I don't think whoever it was making this movie cared about the lore that was in other parts of the series. At least Seven is also a prime number. Yeah. I mean, heck, I don't remember if they had a different number in Cybertron, because Cybertron, I think, did have a list of primes. I think the number's usually 13. Yeah, but it's just I don't remember when that number came up. Mm, okay, if it was fair. before or after this. Yeah, and while they had a rule about not destroying suns that supported life, the Fallen decided that the human sucked and tried to turn it on anyway, because... He's a dick. <laughs> he was basically the equivalent of a pissy house proud lady who with a whose house had a mouse infestation. And he wanted to demolish it anyway, but the humans are the mice in this metaphor. <laughs> uh, the primes tried to fight him, but were unable to actually defeat him. Considering that only a prime is supposed to be able to de defeat the fallen, this is somehow extremely disappointing. So they took the matrix of leadership and sealed it in a tomb made of their own bodies. The Matrix of Leadership is a reoccurring MacGuffin in the Transformers lore, uh, but for some inexplicable reason, in this continuity, 
it is basically just a key for the Star Harvester. <laughs> well, I think it also has some other purposes, considering what they end up using it for later. But yeah, it's primarily just the har uh, the Star Harvester key. Jetfire conveys that Sam needs to find the Matrix of Leadership or they're all fucked. I mean, what happened? Did turning on Jetfire completely destroy the Allspark fragment or is it just dead now? Could they use that to reawaken Op Optimus' body? I mean, yeah, you would think, right? Because, like, they they did, they, they that's how they brought Megatron back, but nobody thought of this. I mean, didn't they already have a thing that they could have used to just wake Optimus up? Maybe? I don't know. I don't know. Moving right along. Um, I want answers. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're not gonna get them. And then, presumably, they leave Jetfire in the desert because he needs a good long nap after generating a whole ass space bridge. Well, he basically tells them to get lost before any auto before any Decepticons show up. Yeah, because assumably he's gonna take a nap. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think another Decepticon does show up at some point, and then Opalization, but who knows? I think Grandpa beats his pants, or beats his ass. <laughs> Sam reaches the conclusion that if the Matrix of Leadership can activate the Sun Harvester, then maybe it could reactivate Optimus, like some sort of robot-activating skeleton key. Seems like a bit of a reach, but alright. No one knows what's going on here, so I guess, sure, let's run with it. They stop by a nearby village, allowing Simmons to contact Nest and somewhat covertly tell them that they need to bring Optimus's corpse over to Egypt. <laughs> Oh, this is going to be so many, uh, so many problems. Soundwave is still able to figure out what the fuck they're saying, though, and deploys the Decepticons to the same location that Simmons had given Nest. You know, do you think his back hurts? You know, from carrying his entire faction? Probably, but I mean, he's in space, so there's not much <laughs> weight up there right now. Probably lessens the feeling a little bit. Using some gibberish about the Three Kings... And also, astrological knowledge. Sam is able to figure out where the Prime's tomb is, and uh, he the group heads towards the mountains of Petra. Lennox's group has also brought the government weasel with them along on their definitely not transporting into a robot corpse mission, and then they fool him into jumping out of the plane so they can carry on without interruption. Slightly less jumping out of the plane, and slightly more uh, fooling him into opening the damn parachute that uh, they got the man to wear, and then he gets swept out because it was moving plane, <laughs> open door, there goes the there goes the parachute. Oof. So much wind. <laughs> and it really might be one of the funniest scenes in the entire movie. It also reads entirely too close to something our D&D group would pull. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ask our DM. Oh, any one of our DMs. Hey, any one of our DMs, but I'm particularly talking about when my poor husband had to DM. Yeah, I'm thinking about the whale incident. <laughs> so Sam and company arrive at Petra. For the non-documentary nerds among us, uh, Petra is an ancient city in southern Jordan. While it does contain more structures than the treasury, which is what I think they show here, uh, this is probably one of the most famous. You may recognize it as the resting place of the Holy Grail in the Indiana Jones movies. And as we were watching, I had a minor panic attack at the giant robots possibly breaking things. Oh, and the, the giant robots definitely break things. The twins fight and hit a wall or a fresco, revealing a hollow area behind it with a very noticeable giant robot bit of <laughs> Then B takes aim at the wall and I have another panic attack, though to be fair, he's got very good aim and only makes what is arguably a very small hole. Through the giant robot bits. 
Sam enters the new hole in the wall and finds a matrix of leadership on the floor, I guess, cradled in the hands of the prime corpses, which, this is super morbid. <laughs> when he picks it up, uh, it crumbles into dust. So Sam does the only thing he can think of and scoops all that dust into his sock. Time to go resurrect Optimus with dirty sock dust! Is it the sock of destiny? It is now. I guess it awakens giant robots but leaves buildings standing. <laughs> all the while, uh, he talks about there having to be some sort of reason for everything that's happening. Uh, to quote a much better character, it's possible to commit no mistakes and still lose, so Sam, you're full of shit. Yep. Back with Nest, uh, they yeet Optimus's corpse out of the plane, and I believe Optimus has parachutes again here. Probably. I mean, if he doesn't, that is just so much corpse desecration. <laughs> And it seems like we arrive back where we started in the first movie, as it looks like they're back in that little desert town where the fight with Scorponok took place. You know, they just they just got to destroy it again. And if that's uh, not that same town, it looks extremely similar. Starscream begins firing on Sam and Co. as they head to the rendezvous location with Nest. <sighs> the group splits up in order to draw the fire away from Sam. Leo, Simmons, and the twins head off. B heads off in another direction, and then Sam and Michaela head towards Optimus's location on foot. This seems like a bad allocation of resources, but okay. <laughs> Nest also spots Starscream, but he has released an EMP burst, cutting off all our communication. Government Weasel, however, has landed safe and sound and is able to reach, and annoy, the Nest headquarters. Yep, the Nest uh, headquarters is frustrated that Weasel can contact them, but they can't contact Lennox's group. Simmons' group stops uh, once they realize Starscream has stopped following them. Megatron and Starscream, none too gently, land on the Great Pyramid. God damn, we're defacing World Heritage Sites! Well, the Egyptian authorities would definitely have um, a case against them for this, because, you know, they, they charge people with doing dumb, ill-advised things on the pyramids. I don't know you're going to get money out of Megatron, but all right. <laughs> uh, I'd go with the blood from the stone thing and literally selling off materials from his body, <laughs> but who knows? That's also very morbid. Um, Megatron orders an attack, and Devastator forms out of more than the requisite number of Constructicons from G1. <laughs> and Devastator makes our last Welker voice con for the day, bringing our number up to five. And out of twelve. <laughs> yeah. And spoiler alert, uh, Devastator looks nothing like G1 Devastator, and also... This is in, like, the same location that Simmons and Leo are at. <laughs> yep. Sam and Michaela, though, are continuing their march towards Nest, all the while trying to avoid Decepticons, and thus hide in one of the nearby houses. Oh, I like the lighting in this scene. The lighting is very nice. So one wall is mostly structured from uh, glass bottles, you know, provides some very nice ambient lighting without the need of electricity. I just... It's very pleasant. It's a very pretty look. Then we get a really nifty scene of the Decepticons looking for them. That's basically one big, long, continuous shot of it going out of a hole. Sam is looking out, going around the scene, and then going back through, I think, the keyhole for the door to the house they're in. Yeah, that sort of continuous shot's very nice. You don't see those very often. Sam catches a tiny Decepticon bug that comes through the hole, leading to them being found on the... House's roof being ripped off by Starscream. They attempt to escape. The twins uh, begin to fight Devastator while a combiner tries to eat everybody with his horrifying trash compactor crusher mouth. 
Mudflap is eaten but doesn't go down easy and punches his way out of Devastator's mouth. The Decepticons reveal that they are holding Sam's parents hostage. But they're all saved by the timely arrival of B. Ravage is killed when B rips his entire body off his spine. How does Ravage keep ending up in two pieces in these things? I think technically he might be in more than two pieces. Well, I'm just saying there was the spine in one hand and the rest of them in the other hand, at least from my memory. I know, it's just, God, unfortunately this feels a whole lot like shucking an ear of corn. (laughs) God, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry for that image. Sam uh, tells B to take his parents out of danger once they he they've gotten them away from the cons. Uh, Sam's dad argues with him, and what we're assuming is supposed to be a counter to his no caring attitude about Sam going off to college in the movie. One of the only positive things is his dad's care for his dad's character is that he does seem to want to take care of, take care of his son. Pity he doesn't show it more. Yeah. Okay, tangent, but you may have noticed we're being less descriptive about things that are happening at this point in the story. That's because we basically hit a point where the remainder is a gigantic action scene and not really much else. Yeah, it's a whole lot of punch, punch, switch scene, punch, punch, switch scene, shoot, shoot, shoot. We're trying, but if something doesn't really make sense, it's because stuff is swapping and not a lot is happening. Oddly enough, this movie is actually a good example of why you should keep things simple from a storytelling perspective. And yeah, I know if you examine the basis of this movie's plot, it is pretty simple, but instead of just, you know, actually going from point A to point B, there's just a ton of waypoints kind of getting in the way of the actions actually happening. Uh, Like, oh well, we'd better go over to this set for yet another action sequence. Nothing that's happened in the last 30 or so minutes has really mattered to the overall plot, because it's just action sequence, action sequence, action sequence. Yep. Dirt, explosions, running, falling down. Rinse and repeat. There is nothing of substance here. Speaking of pointless, it's back to Simmons for absolutely no reason. Uh, Megatron's been on top of the Great Pyramid doing nothing this entire freaking time, and now he chooses to shoot down a helicopter. I don't think he's even been monologuing. Yeah, he hasn't even- he hasn't- that's what I mean, nothing. He's not even been doing anything interesting. Simmons takes the radio from the pilot of said downed helicopter, and follows after Devastator as he heads toward the Great Pyramid. American Army porn. And Air Force. And Navy, probably. Yeah. Sam and Michaela are spotted by Ironhide and the three RCs. Two RCs are down by some cons after their one speaking line in the entire freaking movie. Devastator begins climbing the Great Pyramid. Is Megatron waiting up there for Devastator? Is, is it just too much work to wreck the pyramid by himself? He's got all of these lackeys. He wants the lackeys to do shit for him. Oh, Lord. Simmons follows and contacts the Navy. Okay, okay. The only thing I can think of here is that they needed Simmons to do something. Otherwise, why the heck do they call in military reinforcements, then call in get more military reinforcements? More American army porn. <sighs> Devastator demolishes the top of the pyramid. Yes, yes, just more and more history. Yes, yes. Yet more American army porn. And then Megatron chases Sam and Michaela as they approach Nest. After many, many, many explosions, Sam and Michaela reach Lennox. Who's like, you'd better have a good reason for us to be here. I got a sock full of dust. (laughs) Yes, you do, Sam. Yes, you do. (sighs) Chetfire shows up, taking out a con with his cane. 
Then Scorponok, you know, from the first movie, immediately shows up just to stab Jetfire and ruin all of our days. You know, his uh, triumphant return after disappearance in the last half of the previous movie. And now for the moment you, we, we've all been waiting for. Do you want me to do it? Yes, please. Simmons says, I'm directly below the enemy scrotum. Why would you say that? Why would you say it like this? Why wouldn't you just say I am directly below the enemy? Why did you feel the need to add the word scrotum to that sentence? The enemy's anatomy should not be that important, but I guess Bay thinks balls are important. Right. Hilarious. Important and hilarious. God. Uh, Devastator comes to pieces after being hit by an experimental Navy railgun from the ship that Simmons has been contacting. Yeah. Back with Lennox and company, Absinthe proves yet again to have one of the best lines in the entire movie. They throw some smoke grenades to provide a target for the Air Force. Unfortunately, the smoke's just a bit too close to the party. Epps responds with, it wasn't my best toss, okay? In the ensuing chaos of the airstrike, Sam runs ahead to try and get to Optimus, and Megatron appears out of the smoke to shoot him. Or to dramatically close in on him, I guess. Megatron gets pushed back by some of the nest covering fire and nearms away very awkwardly. Except what's this? Sam's dead. <laughs> Michaela's not so happy about this, though. Uh, sad music plays. Dialogue can be heard faintly as Lennox and the nest crew begins CPR. His parents show back up again. For what purpose, exactly? I think this would have read just fine with Michaela just being the only one sad about Sam. I don't know if this is their attempt at pathos, but it kind of sucks. I mean, I know that the audience is supposed to feel bad that this guy's dead, but... <laughs> I don't! They did a terrible <laughs> job of baking the care. But now is the moment where Michaela tells Sam that she loves him. They had a whole thing about this earlier in the movie we really didn't go over, but they were having kind of an argument on who should say I love you first, blah 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 blah. Nah. But now, a window into Sam's psyche! What? You mean it's not just going to be boobs, boobs, and more boobs? No, no, no. The seven primes appear in a vision to Sam. Oh god, does this make Sam a prime? I really hope not. Oh my god! One of the primes is voiced by Bulkhead. And by Bulkhead, I of course mean his voice actor, Kevin Michael Richardson. A man with a huge filmography that I guarantee you've heard at least a dozen or so things that he has done, if not more. The primes tell Sam that he is worthy of being a prime. Bulk, why do you have to hurt me in this way, and by extension, everyone? <sighs> the magical sweaty sock dust reconstitutes into the matrix of leadership. And, I mean, I'm kind of concerned that some of the remaining sweaty sock dust is now blowing away, or maybe this sock will be some sort of horrifying museum relic. Considering what he did with his shirt, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but I don't really care, because this just means the movie is getting closer to its inevitable conclusion. Sam then takes the Matrix and stabs it into Optimus's chest. Stabby stab, we bring him to life by giving him another stab wound. Magical stabby stab. I think this is how you get robot zombies. Good thing nobody had any dark energon on hand. Or the hate plague. Of course, the Matrix is immediately snatched up by the Fallen. Because we want to have our cake and eat it too, we need to bring Optimus back to life and also to get the giant sun stun gun going too. So the Fallen activates the Star Harvester. 
High levels of shut up and die are reached as the Fallen finally reveals some amount of fighting prowess with a bitchin' anti-gravity staff. Yep. Jet Fire, who has been sort of hanging out this entire time having a giant hole in his chest, sacrifices himself to upgrade Optimus so that he can go fight the Fallen. Jetfire, buddy, sir, he deserved better. He did. Here's one of the few scenes where Jolt is visible as he helps Ratchet get Optimus battle-worthy. Yeah, um, the electric whips were somehow needed for this for some reason. Somehow. Optimus, having gained the power of flight, begins to fight Megatron and the Fallen. But not before destroying the Sun Harvester. Megatron's face is badly damaged as Optimus moves on to the Fallen and rips off the Fallen's face, saying, And I quote, give me your face. And then Optimus rams his hand through the Fallen's chest and uh, rips out and crushes the Fallen's spark. Starscream, being the sane one here, suggests that he and Megatron flee. Megatron, considering that he is dealing with both a head injury and a missing arm from the elbow down, takes Starscream up on his offer. The Fallen having been defeated, Optimus returns to the ground and shrugs off all of Jetfire's parts. Couldn't have kept anything? The gun? No? Nothing? Was it a frame thing? Did you miss the slimmer frame, Optimus? Just be honest here, you know? I mean, maybe you considered it kind of morbid having, like, corpse parts on it? I mean, that <laughs> would be- I know. That would be kind of morbid, but yeah, it, it feels like it's just showing disrespect to Jetfire's sacrifice. Then we move back to Sam and Michaela, interspersed with shots of Nest, the Navy, Simmons, etc. Ah, yes. Soldiers. Brothers in arms. Kissing. Soldiers. Brothers in arms. Kissing. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I was just, like, my brain put those together at first and not what it actually was. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, that would probably be a more interesting movie. Yes. Optimus thanks Sam for saving his life. And I have many questions, Optimus. Did you have... What did you see, Optimus? What did you see? And we end with an Optimus monologue about the two races working together in the future. Oh, Optimus, you're, you're just going to be discarded in two movies, sweetie. And don't trust the U.S. military. We do not have a good track record. Yep. Lincoln Park, much like the first film, plays us out as the credits roll. And thus, we are divided from the rest of the movie. A new divide, if you will. Oh, is that a name drop? It's the name of the song. The title drop. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so what's your take? Wow, I really don't like that movie. The last 30 minutes, hour, whatever, felt like an eternity where the only thing happening was explosions and robots maybe punching each other, and I just didn't care about anything that was happening. The early part wasn't really much better, but at least the characters, you know, were talking to each other. Um, the writing overall isn't good for, like, dialogue, and again, some of the events just kind of feel like, why did this even need to happen? And I do think it's worth mentioning that this was filmed during the 2007 writer's strike. Additionally, regardless of how bad I personally find the dialogue, I still have to give props to Peter Cullen's performance of Optimus. Even the first time I saw this movie, I was sad that Optimus died. And keep in mind, at the time, I didn't know anything about Transformers, aside from seeing the first movie. I feel like Colin puts a lot of heart into his performance of Optimus, and I really can't think of a time where it's felt like he's phoned it in, and I really do appreciate that. Even here, even with the give me your face line. What did you think, Specs? 
Well, I don't have nearly as much to say as you did. Um, <laughs> I liked Jetfire. The SR-71 Blackbird is a very neat plane, and I mean, I liked it before this movie came out, so I liked him for more than one reason. But he was cranky and delightful and Jet, and the best part of the movie. Everything else was just kind of painful. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, I liked Michaela too. Yeah. But she... Uh, she say goodbye to her, because she's not going to be in the next movie. This is the last one with Michaela in it. I think she got the better part of the deal. <laughs> Pity we can't make as graceful of an exit. Yep. But that's it for us now. Uh, we will be posting another episode uh, where we go into more detail on what we personally would have wanted to see in this movie. But we know this is running long as it is, and I think, based on our estimates, this should be around the same length as last year's episode. So we're going to split it. We are also aware that you personally may not care about us trying to, you know, basically fanfic fix this, so... Remember to check us out on Tumblr or Pillowfort as AfterSpark-Podcast for any additional information, show notes, or links we may have mentioned. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at AfterSparkPod, all one word, in various other locations by searching for AfterSpark Podcasts, such as AO3, iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, just to name a few. And feel free to send us questions on Tumblr, YouTube, or AO3. As always, thank you so much for listening. Happy, probably belated by the time this is posted. Holidays to everyone. 2020 has been a hell of a rough year, so please stay safe. And we will be back with more normal episodes soon. Toodles! grabs a, out a knife and begins carving the Cybertronian siblings into the ground. I mean, where did he get the knife? I mean, symbols, you said siblings. <laughs> God, I can't die!